Okay, but let's not lose time. I will tell you what's my plan. I will include then, I think, at the beginning of July, I give the full course for talks and then the Friday debate. That one, I want to, how do they call it in TV preview of forthcoming attractions, no? In that one will be pure, purely in the sense of there is now, it is already for a couple of years, a new tendency emerging in social thought, philosophy, and so on. Uh, it's popular under different names. It began as speculative realism, but now Kantang Mayasu follows his own path. So now it's not a unified field. You have one orientation, so-called assemblage theory. Then you have object-oriented ontology. Then you have new materialism and so on and so on. <coughs> I'm not saying they should be totally dismissed. There are insights here and there, but I think they do deserve a systematic confrontation. And this, I will do it in a very systematic way. The main opponents will be uh, uh, Graham Harman, his immaterialism book, and Delanda, his assemblage theory, and so on, it's worth doing it. So that will be July. Today it will be more politics, ideology, and so on, but don't be afraid, I will always, let me put it in this way, push it to some philosophical point. Okay, let me begin with the title. You have to be stupid, not not to see it, but to see that. Uh, I, uh, I think that this statement, this reversal of the usual one, which is you have to be stupid not to see that, can have two uses. One is the, let's put it naively correct one, which would be that Ideology today adds something to reality, supplements it with some imagined object, which once you do see it, makes things clear for you. My thousand times repeated old example, anti-Semitism, imagine we are in Germany in 1920s, 30s, you have to be stupid to see it. What? The Jew behind all. This would be, you see, too much. But recently, things took a different turn. Today's predominant ideology is precisely masked as anti-ideology. The moment you propose any hope, any plan for a possible alternate order, and so on and so on, the idea is you are a dangerous utopian, you are stupid to see that, to see any change for social change, and so on and so on. So that's what's so interesting for me in today's times. How? Because, my God, now I will, on purpose, talk like an old, almost Stalinist Marxist, because the bourgeois dominant order is so corrupt that it cannot even produce, generate, a convincing global vision. Because for me, therein resides the true revolution of, let us say, Trump. 
America first means screw the world, we don't even pretend to be Fukuyamaists, to have a global vision, whatever. So, again, ideology today is masked as critique of ideology. No wonder that I read in newspapers that two days ago Tony Blair himself made a statement that he wants to ground a politics which would be really post-ideological. What do I mean by this? I think we got a clear example on this orientation in the recent French election. And don't be afraid, I will not read my text from Independence, which brought me so much trouble. I was accused by it of being, how do the Germans say, nützlicher idiot, a useful idiot for Le Pen for that. Okay. Let me begin with a joke, an old joke of mine, don't worry, no black man's penis is nothing problematic. <laughs> an old delicious Soviet joke about Radio Erevan, you know, that mythic radio station which you asked it a provocative question and always the reply is in principle yes, but. So, uh, a listener asks, it's a joke from Soviet time, is it true that Rabinovich, Soviet Jew, legendary figure of Soviet jokes. Is it true that Rabinovich won a new car on lottery? And the radio answers, in principle, yes, it's true, only it wasn't a new car, but an old bicycle, and he didn't win it, but it was stolen from him. <laughs> I think we should apply this joke to French presidential elections. Like, let's ask Radio Erevan, is it true that in a great display of anti-fascist unity, the people of France elected an outsider and defeated a fascist threat to Europe. Our answer should be, in principle, yes, it's true. Only the victorious Macron embodies Europe out of touch with ordinary people. That is to say, the very European politics which gives strength to Le Pen and Macron is not an outsider but establishment at its Purest. Let me explain this. Of course, Le Pen and Macron are not the same. The difference that separates them is obvious. But nonetheless, the choice between the two of them was not the real choice. What do we mean by this? It is enough to focus on the background of each candidate. Yes, Le Pen is a racist populist. Not that I diminish her threat. But even to call her a fascist is, I think, dangerous. Not in the sense that, oh, she is better, I'm not trying to humanize her. But I think that, again, this is yet another example of what I call leftist laziness. You see something that you, and you are justified in this, don't like, and instead of thinking what's new about this, oh, what's the easiest thing to do, apply an old term. But she also addresses of course, in a typically neo-fascist, mystifying way, popular and workers' dissatisfactions. Macron presents himself as tolerant, human, pro-European, but the economic policy he stands for is the main cause of the popular dissatisfaction with Europe. So, as I develop, now I refer to it in my text published in uh, Independent, I just want to repeat it, if you haven't read it, what interests me, if we were to have time to do a deeper analysis, is the feminine aspect with both candidates, no? Le Pen is kind of a feminized, softer 
version of her father, the her father with the human face, let us say. And Macron also, I think, in the way his public image is manipulated, his older wife, which, again, I have nothing against that. That's all, almost what makes me, what is sympathetic for me about him. My God, isn't the dream of all of us when you are in high school to screw your <laughs> nice high school teacher? He did that, I mean. That, what more do we want from life? But uh, I claim that this also provides a kind of maternal authority behind him, and we should never forget what is behind this false, of course, feminization. So, the message of Macron's victory is not the fascist threat awakened us, but quite the opposite. The nightmare is over, we can go to sleep again. Macron's victory opens up the prospect, a very sad prospect, I think, of a future in which every four years we will be mobilized to defeat the fascist threat. And in between, we will be able to sleep in the safe embrace of global capitalism with a human face. The obscenity of the situation is breathtaking. Global capitalism is now presenting itself as the last protection against fascism. And if you try to point out some of Macron's limitations, you are accused of, yes, of complicity with fascism. Since, as we are told repeatedly, by the big and not so big media, extreme left and extreme right are coming together today. Both are, we know the story, anti-Semitic, nationalist, isolationist, anti-globalist, and so on, uh, and so on. This, I think, was really the point of this whole operation, French elections. To make left, which means any prospect of true alternative, disappear. Macron doesn't bring hope. His function was to kill hope. Yes? yes. At the beginning of this talk, you said that uh, you have a plan, plan for, for, for the talk. Yeah. Do you really have a plan? What do you mean by this? Well, I mean, in terms of like, the structure of your talk, do you have a plan, not just in your talk, but an overall kind of plan? Yes, I want to show, as I said, how ideology functions today on the mode of as the title says, you, if you, you are stupid if you see that. So I'm, the paradox, as I announced, and I'm now just illustrating it, is, and in the next paragraph I'm going to it, of how ideology functions today as the very critique of ideology. Because the moment you go beyond the established order, you are accused of uh, leftist utopianism, which ultimately brings gulag or whatever, and so on and so on. And that's what... So there's an established order? Yes. And the objective of this plan is to somehow reverse it, or...? No, I'm much more of a pessimist. I will be as shameless as I can be. So it's impossible. It's impossible to reverse the established order. Is that what you mean? No. That's not my message. <laughs> my message is that uh, yeah, this is my message if you read Will Self. But, I've read the stuff I've met him. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. My message is that 
and I'm not even very original here, at different levels, even people like, I will name them, I don't all the way agree with them, I think they are too naive, too, sometimes too optimistic, but my God, I will go to the highest level of existing order, Elon Musk, and then I will go Elon below. Musk. Yeah, even he knows that we can see clearly the limits of today's global capitalism. But well, he's a billionaire, right? So but that's the irony. Even he thinks that. Can I suggest we just let Suzette... No, no, but this is an important point. What I am saying is that, and this is my optimism in pessimism, that capitalism is changing. We live in an age of tremendous change. Capitalism is no longer... The capitalism is what it's... It's simply that, not only for big ecological reasons like uh, uh, refugees, uh, threat of, uh, but, but that... Uh, you have a message of optimism and pessimism. Right? Yes, exactly this. You have to choose between the two. Which one you no, you can. Because I am a Maoist here. By Maoist, I mean Mao's most famous saying, one of, uh, have a, there is great disorder under heaven, so the situation is excellent. That's what, optimism, isn't it? Yeah, but there are millions who may die on the way. That's... Sorry, but what's your problem here? Am I saying something so paradoxical, crazy? You have a message, but you don't have a plan. No, I don't have a plan, but I, in order to get a plan, we should see that we don't live in a stable order and only idiots have a plan and so on. This order is gradually disintegrating in front of our eyes. That's what I'm saying. So it's disintegrating. But what will happen? That depends on us. I'm not a traditional Marxist. I'm not saying, now I came to that metaphor, the train and so on. There is no historical necessity and so on and so on. But I don't see even anything very eccentric in what I'm saying. My God! Elon Musk, Bill Gates, at some abstract level, agree with it. It can't... When people accuse me, you are a crazy optimist... You're a Maoist and you support Elon Musk. No, I don't support him. I just say, even he sees that capitalism, the way we know it, is approaching a limit. This is, for me, the ABC evidence. And I don't... Again, I don't see anything eccentric about it. I claim that when people approach me, but you are still a utopian, you know, the true utopians are those who think we just do a little bit of austerity and we can go on indefinitely the way it is. No, we cannot. What? I don't even see what's so eccentric in what, in what I'm saying here. So, if I may go on, we hear the point of my mentioning Macron, we reach the supreme irony of how ideology functions today. As I already said, it appears precisely as its opposite, as a radical critique of ideological utopias. The predominant ideology today is not a positive vision of some utopian future, but a cynical resignation, an acceptance of how the world really is, accompanied by a warning that if we want to change it too much, only a totalitarian horror can ensue. My wife smokes. I have nothing against smoking. I think that obsession with 
prohibition of smoking is crucial part of today's healthcare ideology and so on, but that's another story. That's not my problem. But you see, the guy who went out, you see, the, okay, I'm so sad he went out, because now it came to me, this is ideology at its purest, you know. Oh, you are bullshitting, what do you want, you don't have a plan, you see. Now, not only we shouldn't have a plan, but even if you make the appearance of the very, I, like the I, I think the guy said towards the end, that's how the world is. But I don't think this is, I don't, first, I don't think that the world simply is today, in the sense that we have a stable order and so on and so on. Let me give you one prediction, which precisely, if you are a Western liberal, it should worry you. It's extremely important what is going on now at the level of global geopolitics. With its latest initiatives, China, and maybe this is not bad, I'm not making a judgment, China is establishing itself more and more as, and this is a beautiful irony, a, a country with still some kind of formally Marxist communist government, is establishing itself as the center of new global market. Because uh, uh, Trump is screwing things up, I'm more and more satisfied with Trump. I think four or five years of Trump and the United States will be a stupid local power. There. <laughs> and there will be a totally new geopolitical constellation and so on and so on. Because America first, you know, this is a very sad statement. Which means we no longer can be a global superpower and so on and so on. But okay, let me go on. So every vision of another world is dismissed as ideology. Alain Badiou put it in a wonderful and precise way. The main function of ideological censorship today is not to crush actual resistance. This is the job of repressive state apparatuses. But to crush hope, to immediately denounce every critical project as opening a path at the end of which there is something like gulag. So, to address in this way uh, another uh, problem, what has all to do this, for example, with refugees? To put it briefly, Macron's politics, the politics he embodies with his previous role as French finance minister and so on, Macron's politics created them and Le Pen promises to defend us, to defend us from them. That's why, and that's my point, all my sympathy with refugees. Incidentally, three days ago, I was with them. The only intelligent thing that happened in Venice, at Venice Biennale, was that crazy Slovene group, Laibach, Neue Slovenische Kunst, established their own pavilion, but with their own imaginary state, where the show was curated by refugees and so on and so on. And what I like there is that their attitude is... Not the first thing should be to to reject easy simplifications. The first one is, and some of my friends advocate this line. I'm totally opposed to it. Refugees are the new nomadic proletariat. First, there is a very decadent, typically Eurocentric dream. Is it the dream is this one? 
We in Europe, we have the right leftist theory, but we lack a revolutionary agent. So, I will be cynical now. Why don't we outsource it and import the revolutionary agent and so on and so on? But with all my sympathy, but not humanitarian sympathy, because I think sympathy means let's help them. No, we should do much more. We should intervene in the situation geopolitical, economic, so that it will no longer produce refugees. The important thing is to change the way Europe, United States, even China and so on deal with third world countries and so on. It's stupid to think that the problem of refugees will be solved if we open up our hearts and what? Invite all of them to, to Europe or whatever. In this way you either abolish democracy in Europe or... or uh, or you give, we can as well immediately give power to Marine Le Pen or whatever. Uh, uh, so, again, uh, let me go on. Uh, we should not treat them as victims. We should not play that humanist card, oh, why don't we listen to your story and so on, what, that we will discover that, that they are also human like us. Of course there are, there is nothing to discover here. The discovery to make is what are they doing? Is what made them refugees? Second point: uh, this simplification. Refugees are the new proletarians. Look, Marx was not simply bluffing, if I put it in this way. For him, a proletarian meant something very precise: labor force reducing to pure subjectivity without substantial content. That is to say, workers just. The only thing they have is working force, they are selling it, and in this way they create wealth, but in the very process of creating wealth, it's taken away from them, and so on and so on. Which is why Marx always emphasized that being a proletarian, it's not just in some abstract sense being exploited, but it's at the same time being trained, disciplined, through factory work, and so on and so on. I don't see how refugees in any meaningful way can play this role. If anything, they come to Europe, at least many of them, in search of becoming a proletariat. Like, isn't their goal to get a stable post here? No, I'm not saying so. If you are a Marxist revolutionary, forget about refugees. I'm just saying that this type of direct simplification, oh, nice, we have a new, a new uh, proletariat to act as a revolutionary agent. No, it doesn't work in this way. The tragedy is that refugees, that almost the main tension in Europe are almost between refugees and the lower middle class existing old-fashioned uh, working class. And uh, what, where I'm really mad at today's left is that they bypass this problem, oh, it's just because workers in Europe are manipulated, we should bring solidarity. Okay, bring this solidarity. How? There is no, there is no uh, easy way here. So, how then should we deal with this problem? Now I will try, I'm jumping to another topic, but it's strictly in the same line of proletarian position today, how to deal with refugees, to uh, <coughs> Jean-Claude Milner, not Miller, Milner, his new book, 
I mean, you know, Milner is in no way a radical leftist. He's, I would say, some kind of a Zionist liberal. But he's not stupid, and this means a lot to me. In his new book, Relire la Révolution, I mean, if you read French, I don't know, did he tell you? Will it be translated? It's a wonderful book. He convinced me absolutely, again, in my love for Jacobins and so on. You know, we usually treat Jacobins as forerunners of crazy Stalinist uh, trials and so on. Wait a minute. Just some data. In Jacobins' purges, so-called, you know that when they had all those mock trials, as they appear to us, 60% people were pardoned. So they were not this type of Stalinist trials with all functions. Part two. I love this. This is a recent discovery. It's wonderful. Do you know that For example, usually liberals claim as the ultimate horror. Oh my God, Danton. They just wanted to get rid of one of them. Sorry to tell you, now in some British archives they found proofs. They were right. Danton was paid by the British. So, it's, but okay. Uh, In the French revolutionary Jacobins, and again, they functioned in a totally different way from a Stalinist dictatorship. Never forget Their, their, their weapon was to the end, their main weapon was public speech, species in Assemblée Nationale. That's why they were simply overthrown by, by, by the vote in Assemblée Nationale. And if you read some of the latest letter exchanges between Saint-Gist and Robespierre, it's extraordinary. They were not idiots. They saw it coming. But Robespierre made the choice. I know I will lose my head. I prefer to do this than to step outside of the law. Okay, let me not lose time. Let me go on. Their big ideological revolution was the notion of human rights. The distinction between human rights and citizens' rights. Milner, and I think he is right here, he rejects the Marxist critical notion of human rights as the rights of the member of a bourgeois civil society. You know, for Marx, the distinction between human rights and citizens' rights simply echoes the distinction between me as an egotist individual, member of bourgeois civil society, and me following my particular interests, and me as a universal citizen. For Milner, Citizen is the member of a community, sharing its specific culture, while a human being is what remains of a citizen when he or she is deprived of his or her citizenship. Human rights are natural only in this sense of the externality to a particular culture. They have nothing to do with eternal nature, since they apply simply to what remains of a citizen after he or she is subtracted from a specific police, community. In this sense, their nature, the nature, natural character of human rights, is a retroactive effect of culture. You know, you imagine member of a community, you erase, subtract all historically specific features, and what remains is, why did they call it nature? They simply didn't have another because the only alternative to nature was God. 
like we are all children of God, but they specifically wanted to avoid this. So here is a wonderful quote from Milner. One gains a glimpse into the real of the rights of the body, in the sense that human rights refer to humans reduced to a speaking body, in examining what goes on when they are denied to individuals. Every day brings a new example. I do not have to think about bombs and poisonous gases. I think about Calais, Calais, the French city. Those who are assembled there from the year of 2000, but now it was dismantled, I think, the Calais camp, no? are not guilty of anything. They are not accused even of anything. They do not infringe upon any part of the law. They are simply there and they leave. The proof that they leave is that sometimes they die. Nobody knows what language they are speaking, and anyway, one doesn't listen to them. One only knows that they speak. They are therefore reduced to the status of speaking bodies. By the settlement to which they are submitted, they literally render visible in a negative way the real of the rights of men or women. These rights are openly distinguished from the rights of a citizens, since refugees are precisely not the citizens of Calais, and mostly they even do not want to become that. End of quote. Milner insists, and he is very close to authentic materialism, on the vulgar materiality of these rights. Human rights are more basic than the rights to reunion, free speech, opinion, and so on. Before that comes the material base of a body, water, food, hygiene, toilets, minimal space for privacy, and so on. If individuals are deprived of this, the higher human rights, free speech, and so on, disappear. Human rights are first such basic material rights, toilets, kitchen, healthcare. Rights begin with the space for secretion. This is, I think, the set base of my story that I repeated at least 30 times about, you know, the distinction between German, French, and uh, Anglo-Saxon toilets. Uh, insofar as human rights proclaimed in the French Revolution, uh, were first proclaimed in the French Revolution, one should note the irony that Calais is a French city. And, of course, different political orientations give them different accent to these rights. For Marxists, they emphasize more these material rights to safety, food, and so on. So-called capitalists emphasize more these intellectual rights. But, is, but again, what, should, what one should make clear is that precisely as universal, human rights, again, are not simply natural. What counts as a human right? is always overdetermined by a specific historical constellation. Already the fact that Milner renames them the rights of man slash woman echoes contemporary feminist struggles. We should also bear in mind that although humans are covered by this who are covered by these rights are proletarian in the sense of being deprived of citizenship, they are nonetheless not abstract Cartesian cogitos. They come as individuals embedded in a specific way of life, 
often in conflict with the way of life of the country in which they dwell as refugees. So here problems begin, not in the sense that uh, we Europeans should watch over them because their way of life is uh, primitive or whatever. I'm far from saying that. I'm just saying, and this is what brought me so many problems and so on, I'm just saying that there is a problem here. What, where is the problem? Again, when we are dealing with the difficult problem of how to relate universal struggle for emancipation to the plurality of ways of life, nothing should be left to change, not even the most self-evident general notions. Left liberals view the very notion of way of life with suspicion, as if, if it doesn't apply to marginal mi man minorities, it conceals a proto-fascist poison, as if you mention a way of life, oh my God, I already see brown shirt in your cellar hidden, or getting uh, ready to wear. Uh, against this suspicion, one should accept this term, a way of life, I claim, in its Lacanian version, as something that points beyond all cultural features towards what, in my Lacanian jargon, I call a core of the real, of enjoyment, jouissance. A way of life is ultimately the way of how a certain community organizes its, in social forum, its jouissance, its enjoyment. This is why integration is such a sensitive issue. When a group is under pressure to integrate into a wider community, it often resists out of fear that it will lose its mode of jouissance. A way of life does not encompass just rituals of food, music, dance, social life, and so on, but also, and above all, habits, written and unwritten rules of sexual life, including inclusive of rules of mating and marriage, and of social hierarchy, respect of elders, and so on. In India, for example, and I'm telling this from my personal experience, some post-colonial theorists defend even the caste system as part of a specific way of life, which, again, should be defended against the global onslaught of, global, of, the onslaught of global individualism. So, uh, what do I mean by jouissance here? Let me give you just a brief detour, which I hope will make at least vaguely the orientation clear. Uh, are you watching? It's now on TV, I claim. And if you don't, you can easily copy it from Pirate Bay. Uh, this, uh, the new TV version of Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale. Okay. Ask yourself a simple question. Why do you enjoy watching it. Don't give me the bullshit that it's just, oh, it's horror. It depicts a serious threat of fundamentalists taking it over and so on and so on. No, that's not why you enjoy watching it. You enjoy watching it because, and I claim this as a self-evident fact, even if you deny it now, because you are absolutely fascinated by the reality depicted there. And the, I spoke with my 
friends, feminists, and so on. And they like this when you discover more and more concrete rules, you know, but if women are not allowed to read, how do, you, how do they shop? Yes, because you go tablets with images of fruits, or all these details. I claim that this, this uh, it's a very strange lesson, the one of Handmaid's Tale, that it's not as innocent as it appears. Yes, it depicts a danger of alternate reality where fundamentalists can take over, but it's also absolutely our disavowed enjoyment in imagining this world. And with enjoyment, things turn strange. For example, another example, then we return to the main line. Uh, uh, recently, there was a legal case in Mexico, and this is what happened. Uh, a man was cleared, in, was pardoned by a court, maybe you read it, Guardian and others reported it, there was a case of sexual assault on a young schoolgirl. And the man, who was still a young man, but in his mid-twenties from a rich family, he was cleared, proclaimed not guilty, and no facts were disputed. Yes, he did uh, squeeze, the, to be vulgar, I'm sorry, squeeze the girl's breasts, uh, entered her vagina with his fingers and so on. But his defense was that while he was doing it, he did not enjoy himself. And the judge, his name is Anwar Gonzalez, found that although Diego Cruz, the young guy who did this, was accused of touching the victim's breasts, penetrating her with his fingers, he had acted without carnal intent. And so he was not guilty of the assault. This logic is weird. Would it not be more obvious to claim the opposite? If the man's motivation... I mean, I'm not following this line. I'm just stating what is for me pure common sense. In no way would I justify this. But if you push me at the end, if the guy was in middle of some absolute erotic passion and doing it, it would be, for me, one millimeter better than just brutally doing it, just in a cold way. Uh, so why this weird logic that since he didn't enjoy, he is not guilty? The only way to explain this is to presuppose the underlying premise. Experiencing pleasure as such makes us guilty, so that without pleasure there is no guilt, with, with all the Protestant complications, that there is no, not only no without guilt there is no pleasure, but that there is also no pleasure without guilt. You know, there is an old joke which is pretty accurate, I think, and should be always remembered today, when this year, when, as you know, like, uh, I love this metaphor, you know, New Agers like this idea that when three planets are on the same line, then something fateful will happen, the whole universe will lose balance. Okay, we are in such a year this year. Fifth, uh, uh, 150 years of the publication of Capital, 150, 100 of, uh, of uh, October Revolution, and don't forget, 
50 years in 67 of the key event of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. It was the moment of truth when people in Shanghai, Shanghai Commune, took what Mao was saying seriously and said, OK, we don't need army, we don't need party, we will do it. And then Mao had to send in the army. Thousands died. So this is crucial point. The highest battle with most victims of cultural revolution was not against bourgeoisie, reactionaries, was strictly internal. But okay, and also, people tend to forget that the situation is even worse in the sense of this cosmic balance. 500 years of Luther, you know, posting those 95 theses or whatever. Okay, coming back to my point, the joke is this one. What's the difference in sinning between Catholicism and Protestantism? In Catholicism, Everything is pardoned if you admit it in the confession at the end of the week. And in Protestantism, you just have to feel a little bit guilty, then you can do whatever you want. So I think, again, this is the logic behind it. Guilt and pleasure go together in, uh, in both ways. And precisely this, uh, collect this what like we Lacanians call jouissance, enjoyment invested into collective way of life is what those who preach simple multicultural coexistence of different ways of life where they cheat, I think. Even, and with all my love for him. For example, my good friend Alain Badiou recently published a text on multiculturalism, blah, blah, and... Uh, he claims every group in France should have the right to stick to its way of life. And then he specifies what is this way of life and said their kitchen, their traditional dresses, their, uh, their music, blah, 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 their dances, their poetry. Well, and then, uh, 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 I was, wait, uh, when? It's typically, for his argument to work, he has to leave out uh, relations of servitude and sexual arrangements. You know, because their problems begin. Namely, again, the problem is this one. When we are dealing with the difficult problem of how to relate universal struggle for emancipation to the plurality of ways of life, uh, as I already uh, said, we should be very careful. To deal with this problem, the preferred vision, this is Badiou's vision, is that of a united global world with all particular ways of life thriving. Each of them asserting its difference from others, not as an antagonistic relationship, not at the expense of others, but as a positive display of creativity that contributes to the wealth of entire society. That's his vision. Each group should be free to assert its way of life, not at the expense of others, but it should be perceived, the plurality of ways of life, precisely as contributing to general wealth of humanity and so on. When an ethnic group is prevented from expressing this identity, 
in a creative way, since it is under pressure to renounce it and to integrate itself into the predominant, usually Western culture and way of life, then it cannot but react so that it withdraws into negative difference, a regressive purist fundamentalism that fights the predominant culture and even resorts to violent means. In short, fundamentalist violence is a reaction for which predominant culture is responsible or applied to immigrants and so on. If they are violent, it's because our integration was constraining their creative way of life. Now, I think that this entire vision of particular identities contributing to a united world and threatened by the violent pressure on minorities to integrate, in other words, by the false universality of the Western way of life, which imposes itself as a standard for all, this entire vision is to be rejected entirely, I claim. Why? The world we live in is one, but it is one because it is traversed and in a way even held together by the same antagonism, the one inscribed into the very heart of global capitalism. Universality is not located above particular identities. It is not their neutral container, but it is an antagonism that cuts from within each way of life. This antagonism overdetermines all particular emancipatory struggles and cuts from within each way, again, of life. Explicit and unwritten rules of hierarchy, homophobia, male domination, and so on, are key constituents of a way of life in which they occur. Let me give you an example for which I already used it here, and I like to repeat it because I was ferociously attacked for it as uh, again, European racist, preparing a pogrom, and so on. A story, probably you know what happened in my own country with Roma, so-called gypsies. Uh, a, lady, a young Roma girl escaped to Slovene police some 15 years ago, claimed that, uh, 12-year-old, that her father married her to his friend, blah, 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 and uh, that she doesn't want to be married at that age. And then... But it was a big debate what to do. Feminists protected her, and the irony was the same feminists who otherwise were totally for multiculturalist tolerance and so on. They said, no, women's rights, we shouldn't allow it. But the interesting thing is how the Roma community reacted. They say, and in a way they were right, they said, sorry, but arranging marriages is the very core of our way of life. If you take this from us, in two, three generations, we disappear. So, again, what would you have done? I'm not saying there is an easy way out. I'm just saying it is a problem. Or, let's take the very sensitive case of China and Tibet. The brutal Chinese colonization of Tibet is a fact. But this fact should not make us blind for what kind of country Tibet was before 49, and even before 1959. An extremely harsh feudal society with extreme hierarchy regulated in details. In the late 1950s, when the Chinese authorities still more or less tolerated the Tibetan way of life, they just controlled foreign policy and so on, borders, uh, 
a villager visited his relatives in a neighboring village without asking his feudal master for permission, when he was caught and threatened with severe punishment. He, he took refugee in a nearby Chinese military garrison, but when his master, feudal master, learned this, he complained that the Chinese are brutally meddling into Tibetan way of life. And he was right. So what should the Chinese do? Another similar example is that of a traditional Chinese caste, uh, sorry, Tibetan caste. Uh, uh, you know, Tibet, many mountains, and so only narrow path. And there was a precise rule when people of unequal social status, let's say a feudal master or a high lama and an ordinary farmer, meet walking in the opposite direction, the the guy, the poor guy, the lower, had to step out of the path. Not just this, but there was a precise ritual. Uh, he was obliged to put a sleeve over his shoulder, bow down, and look with the eyes up and stick his tongue up. Like the whole ritual of appearing totally stupid. And this was definitely part of their way of life. And then, as they say, the Chinese brutally intervened into this, and so on, and so on, and so on. Uh, uh, so, you, you see what's my solution here. First, I don't have any sympathies for what the Beijing government is doing generally, and so on, and so on. I'm just claiming that this is, this is a serious conflict, and I agree with those who defend Tibetan way of life and say the Chinese have no right to intervene brutally from outside, imposing their measures, uh, their customs, and so on, and so on. But, obviously, and on this I'm putting my bets, as it were, obviously, this Chinese ancient way of life what, you know, that's crucial to see. It was not a unified, stable, harmonious tradition, then evil communists come and destroy it. It was full of extreme tensions, violences, and so on and so on. And the way to do it is to, not just to intervene from outside and send some enlightened families to teach them. This is ridiculous. If I may repeat another old joke which some of you know, but it's such a delicious story that I like to repeat it. A nice example of this external colonialist intervention, when there was the civil war in Bosnia, some and women were raped, blah, blah. At some point, uh, American feminists, ah, they wanted to play this card, yes, we sympathize with raped women, so they established a contact with a, a Bosnian organi organization, women's organization of victims of rape, and to clarify their position, they sent them a questionnaire, which was then for years a laughing matter in Bosnia. Because, like, you know, it's simply in a totally, uh, let's call it, culturally colonizing racist way, it projected onto Bosnian American theoretical even concerns of that time. Like the first quest question in this questionnaire was, do you think that a woman has, a woman has an eternal essence or do you think that 
femininity is, is a performatively constructed through, like Judith Butler, you know. And they just laughed, like, wait a minute, what's going on? So I know well what is uh, uh, cultural, uh, uh, what is uh, uh, cultural imperialism here. But nonetheless, again, the crucial thing is nonetheless not to, uh, not to mystify these traditional communities. This is why, now I come to my crucial point, all those who claim the fact today is that Aboriginal, wherever they are, pre-modern communities are terrorized by Western universality, whose ideology, human rights, is just a tool of global financial imperialism, and so on, and so on. I, uh, this is happening, of course. But what I'm claiming is a much nicer thing, is that, first, I absolutely disagree with the claim that the basic, let's call it bombastically, global imperialist strategy is to destroy local communities. No. It never was the case, it's not today the case. For example, I'm sorry if you know this example again, I know the situation in India here. The most horrible, maybe the most horrible ideological masterwork that I know, The Loss of Man, an ancient text, 400 pages, you can get in Penguin, which, which describes the logic of uh, caste system. And a perverse old man as I am, I immediately went into sexual part, no? My God, it's wonderful, you know. It describes if after sex, man does, not wanting the woman to get pregnant, how do you call it, you pull out the penis before, no? In what sense, in what precise way should he then wipe his penis? You know how you should turn around. It's wonderful. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that it's extremely interesting. The book has an excellent uh, introduction where it explains the basic paradox. It's not ancient Indian tradition. Before British colonization, India was in a messy state. Muslim influence and so on. And this book became almost irrelevant. It got a big revival in early 19th century when British colonizers got it in a very nice way that, no, no, we don't want Indians to lose their tradition and to become individuals like us in this way. They will be much harsher, much more difficult it would be to dominate them. No, so they reprinted the book, propagated it, because they discovered if Indians follow these ancient traditions, oh, that's the way to keep them, no? Uh, and uh, even today, for example, some of my friends told me that uh, Palestinian and progressive Israeli friends, that on the West Bank, in a refined way, uh, Israeli occupiers are playing the same game. When there is a so-called honor killing or whatever, they, as a rule, don't... Uh, prosecuted. Because they got it that it's in the, what they should fear is not Palestinians who remain Islamic fundamentalists. No. Palestinians who want to modernize themselves and so on. You know. So they are playing these games. So again, my point is here that uh, it's not simply imperialists destroying local 
traditions is that a pact between, let's call it, imperialism and the reactionary, whatever you call it, aspect of local traditions. Local society are always traversed by inner antagonisms and so on and so on. So I agree, our fight should not be we, Western universalists, impose our value, but to find a contact to work, to connect our struggle with their struggle. That's the only, that's the only way. And this is happening, even in the case of China and Tibet. Incidentally, so that you will not accuse me of Chinese state propaganda. All the data that I gave you about China, they are not from that foreign languages official Chinese press. I got them from uh, anti-Chinese histories of Tibet uh, and so on. You know. So, uh, again, uh, 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 this is an interesting fact that you learn. You know, in cultural revolution, they destroyed many monasteries in Tibet and so on. So, the official story was Chinese imported thousands of Red Guardists from main China. Uh, uh, uh. Now we know the data. You know how many Red Guardists came from China to Tibet? 50. 5, zero. So all those thousands young people, it was going on, horrible, destroying monasteries. No, no, they were their own disaffected youth. Uh, uh, the time of Tibetan ancient regime, the time was over. So, you see, if you want to fight for Tibet, do it. But don't play the game of, oh, this sacred, ancient uh, Tibetan tradition, and so on, and so on. You know where is, for me here, the biggest irony? I love it. American Indians, some people call them Native Americans. I hate the term. I mean, it's, I will not repeat my joke. It's more reactionary than Indians, to call them Indians. Uh, I read a very tragic analysis. A Native American Indian friend gave it to me. You know, they're saying they have some ancient holistic wisdom, blah, blah, they should develop it. But you know which tribes only succeed doing it? Those who have mineral or oil in their land so that they can earn money to organize the life reproduction of their tradition. So, it's not simply, oh, we should stick to our tradition. Yes, but we can only stick to our tradition by at the same time fully including ourselves into, into uh, global capital and so on and so on. So where are we today? I think that, first, I do oppose, of course, that Western racism. Uh, even if it's feminist or whatever, of we have universal human values and so on. And I did my homework. I know in what way, for example, what we call individual freedoms and so on reflect a certain way of life. They are not neutral. But I think we should nonetheless save universalism. We should not draw a faithful conclusion that forget about universalism, each civilization should be allowed its own way of life. The moment we do this, we are in world 
market, total, the, uh, total uh, domination of world market. I know that universal human rights, I know the story, they were uh, directed by United States to screw third world countries and so on and so on. But we should not, because of this, abandon universalism, but simply fight for a more authentic universalism. And the sad thing about Trump, what people like Trump, Putin, Erdogan in Turkey, China stand for, is precisely this, they got something very important, that universal global market does not only does not need a universal political structure of human rights and so on, but functions much more efficiently with each state nation allowed its particular way of life. In this way, there are no universal rules constraining world market, which is why I see no paradox in the fact that, as I already mentioned it, I think, and this is a wonderful, crazy fact, how today, after the stupidities of Trump, it's China which is emerging as the main organizer of a new global market. They are doing this really very intelligently. Precisely China, which all the time emphasizes their own Confucian tradition and so on and so on. So we have now a new... I mean, we were right to criticize this Western imperialism of human rights and so on. But now I think we are gradually shifting to something different. Uh, again, think about the names of Modi in India, China, Erdogan, Turkey, Putin, and so on. Strong ethnocentric nationalism, or America versus Trump, as much more appropriate ideological forum of... Uh, global capitalism. Uh, what is happening here? Uh, you know, I developed this already in my books, uh, this formula of Zionist anti-Semitism, which you find already in Nazis. You know, I will not bore you here with this, but my favorite uh, quote is, ah, I have it here, it's so nice, I will read it to you. Reinhard Heydrich, you know, the Holocaust guy, you know what he wrote in 1937? You will not believe it. A quote. We must separate the Jews into two categories. The Zionists and the partisans of assimilation. The Zionists profess a strictly racial concept and, through emigration to Palestine, they help to build their own Jewish state. Our good wishes and our original goodwill go with them, and so on. This is the first formula of, then later you find it in all modern right, up to those obscure guys around Trump. Zionist anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism in the sense of no Jews here, they are dangerous, invisible, but Jewish state, wonderful, we support them, and so on. What I'm claiming is if you followed closely you know, Erdogan, they had this stupid referendum in Turkey where Erdogan won, although with a little bit of cheating properly. But it was, again, a vote for this type of ethnocentric, authoritarian, more on Islam-founded state, the end of Kemalist Turkey, to cut a long story short. Uh, I claim that what we are getting now is a new version of this Zionist anti-Semitism. It is... Islamophobic respect for Islam. It's Islam is good if it's there. 
No wonder Trump, Putin, they all immediately congratulated Erdogan. And even those Europeans who were superficially critical of Erdogan silently said, okay, now they have their own way, we will have here our own, our own way. But again, not here. Here we don't need them, you know, like, uh, what's going on here? I think it's, you remember Huntington, the guy, he was more popular 20, 30 years ago, uh, the clash of civilizations, you know. I think this is the lesson of it today. There is no opposition between Fukuyama and Huntington. Huntington, clash of civilizations, is precisely the ideological forum of Fukuyama is global capitalism and so on. They were wrong to think that they are opposed. The formula is, what is emerging today is, instead of clash of civilizations, uh, peaceful coexistence of civilizations, in the sense of each of us, this is the new world that is emerging. Each of us should have the right to organize their own, its own way of life, this was already the old strategy of British Empire and so on. But you should respect, this is why, for example, the United Kingdom, you know, they never went to war to protect women in India or there, or in China, but they went to war against the minimal limitation of opium trade, that one of the most shameful wars of all time, uh, when Western allies attacked China in 1840s, I think, you know. That's the world, I think, with Trump and so on, that we are approaching. And what really worries me is how some so-called anti-colonialist leaders who present themselves and progressive accept this game. For example, I was shocked a couple of, one month ago, something like this, a couple of weeks, Robert Mugabe even called you should follow this, right? called Trump, ironically of course, but nonetheless, uh, comrade. And said, comrade Trump said, America first, we accept this, for Americans, America first, for us, Zimbabwe first, and so on. Which means, you can screw up your people, just please allow us to, uh, 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 to screw our people. So, again, uh, this is, I think, uh, uh, this is, I think, the danger. And the problem with Trump is just how far he will go in this direction. He still has some tendencies towards America as a global policeman. For example, did you notice how the United States protested a couple of weeks ago, claiming that... Uh, 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 you know, of Russian government meddling through hacking and so on into American elections. But my God, Americans do this all the time. They even don't, don't do it secretly. They open, for example, and I'm all for Ukraine, blah, blah, against Russia, but nonetheless, you should know that Americans openly admit that there are dozens of so-called NGOs and so on the problem is if Americans do it, it's for universal human rights. If uh, Russians do it, it's a dark plot or whatever. But they will find the shared language. I think Trump is moving in the right way. I mean this in a very pessimistic way. And so, again, we should absolutely uh, reject the idea that uh, 
there is an anti-colonialist opening in this. No, because as, you know what's the problem? As long as the West tried to impose its universal human rights, you could still do very efficiently, and that's how anti-colonialist movements develop, an immanent critique of ideology. You could say, wait a minute, you propose universal human rights, but you are cheating. You don't apply it fully, you privilege certain people, and there is a great space in this. Like, as I always repeat, I'm sorry if I repeat myself again, that's why I never accepted that simple pseudo-Marxist critique of universal human rights. Yes, at the beginning they were exclusively uh, human rights were basically privileging, they were the rights of rich, male, western, whatever men. But as you know, probably better than me, it exploded immediately. First, women Mary Wollstonecraft joined then, the ultimate event. Haiti, black revolution, why not us, even workers' movement developed. You know, that's what is so good about universalist ideology. It is false but it opens up immediately, it's self-inconsistent, no? Well, if we regress to this level, to each of us, its, her, hers, their own culture, then what remains as a global order are just some, some, uh, some legal limits which regulate the free flow of capital. And it's much better for uh, capitalism and so on. That's why I think, I don't have time to develop it now fully, but that's why I think it's extremely dangerous to accept this logic, even popular in some leftist circles, uh, of uh, leftist nation-state patriotism. As, it, as the idea is this one, universal order, even European Union, is the ultimate tool of international capital, so the only way to constrain global capitalist logic is to have a strong nation-state which can somehow contain it, take more care of workers' rights, and so on and so on. Maybe in some situations this will be good, although don't forget that Syriza began like that. And now it's the saddest example of what I would have said. I like to use this sarcastic comparison. It looks again that if you want to enact a minimum of pro-working class legislation, only right-wingers can do it today. This is what Marine Le Pen promised. This is what the conservative whatever justice and order party in Poland did it. They did crazy things. Half a year ago, the Polish government, under the influence of Kaczynski, the founding father, uh, you know, they enacted crazy legislation, lowering the age of retirement, raising the, uh, uh, raising the unemployed benefits, healthcare, and so on and so on. And the opposite. If you want to enact the toughest austerity, the best is to leave it to radical left to do it. Syriza. This was such an ingenious move by Europe, because imagine conservatives in power doing it. We would have demonstrations all the time and so on. But very wisely, they decided, this is why they never tried, I learned all this from my friend Varoufakis, they never tried really to, to overthrow Syriza. They wanted to get rid of him, Varoufakis. But no, no, Tsipras was untouchable. Why? Because they knew if Syriza loses power, all its mobilizatory 
strength would remain and they would protest and so on. But by way of keeping Syriza in power, they demoralize totally, more or less, the situation. You have now some marginal protests and so on and so on and nothing. Where am I now with question of time? Well, there's 45 minutes left in the session, so maybe turn it to the audience who... Uh, maybe, although it will be... Okay, no... Uh, uh, uh. Okay, so, because I wanted to go, but I will not now, I wanted to go further, just I will, if you give me five minutes to conclude. What I wanted to add is... A guy who wrote an interesting book, he's not an idiot, I met him, I think, in L.A., Ramesh Srinivasan. He wrote a book on decolonizing digital technology, claiming that the way Google and all these are structured is implicitly privileging the Western individualist notions. So the idea is that, and I find catastrophic his uh, Conclusion. His conclusion is that the starting point of every digitalization should be a local culture. All the local wisdoms and so on, how to accept, how to articulate them, and that wider communication comes is secondary. But again, and uh, I, uh, I find this so problematic because he in his great struggle against Western colonization and so on, not even once he mentions the option that what if these original communities, Indian, African, are somehow also traversed by antagonisms. The rhetoric is strictly what I mentioned. They are harmonious, happy, then these brutal universalists come, and so on and so on. Again, what he doesn't get it is the whole full dialectics of it, that in today's world civilization, the very fact of still surviving as an isolated community is already in some way mediated by global market. You are either excluded from it or tolerated or whatever, and so on and so on. Again, if we don't under, understand how there are, of course there are global communities threatened by, sorry, uh, authentic local communities threatened by global market and so on and so on. But the solution is in no way to find some core of resistance in these this local communal traditions and so on and so on. Of course, they shouldn't simply dissolve in global market. But here I am an old-fashioned European universalist of enlightenment. The only way, paradoxically, to retain their particular way of life is to link it to universal struggle of emancipation. There is no opposition here. If you want to keep your authentic way of life outside universalism of the struggle for, of emancipation, you will get the worst authoritarian aspect of your, of your local uh, traditions. And that's why, to conclude what I already said, uh, 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 Oh, sorry, let me read you to conclude us a passage from this Srinivasan or whatever, which tells it all. A quote from his book. 
While it is important to learn about other people, cultures and communities on their terms, we must respect the power and importance of local, cultural, indigenous and community-based creative uses of technology. Conversations that surpass the bounds of community can and should emerge, but only when the voices of their participants are truly respected. From this perspective, the global village is the problem rather than the solution. We must reject assumptions about technology and culture that are dictated by Western concepts of cosmopolitanism. Okay, I agree with you, but my option would be why not another type of cosmopolitanism, and so on and so on. The only way, again, my problem with global capitalism is not that it corrodes local cultures. The examples that I offer to you of Turkey and so on is that precisely it thrives on, on them. Today's global capitalism, its ideological superstructure is more and more strong local ethnic tradition for reasons that I will not go into today. So the whole problem for me... Uh, Ah, yes, and then, sorry, just another quote from this guy, where you end up if you follow this path. He claims that, quote, the epistemological privilege granted to modern science from the 17th century onwards, which made possible the technological revolutions that consolidated Western supremacy, was also instrumental in suppressing other non-scientific forms and knowledges. It is now time to build a more democratic and just society and decolonize knowledge and power. I consider this madness. You know why? Because, again, beneath it is this idea also proposed by some pseudo-Foucauldians and so on. Science is just another discourse. Why privilege over magic thinking and so on and so on. But you know what I find so ironic here? That those who claim this today are not really partisans of authentic ancient tradition. They appear as partisans of authentic local traditions, but they are effectively the most decadent postmodernists, who claim, you know, there are just different uh, discourses, everything is a play of discourse, and so on and so on. And uh, don't have any illusions here. We were too much obsessed with this idea objectivity of science is a Western domination and so on and so on. No, it can be easily universalized, appropriated by others and so on and so on. I think that the greatest threat is precisely this type of cultural relativization. We are all in our cultures. Basically, the message is, again, no universality. And that's the name of the catastrophe today. Because, why? Because we live in a world which is a world of universality. That's, and with this I will conclude, don't be afraid, that's the big lesson of Marx. Idiots think that the big lesson of Marx is historicist relativization of every universality. You know, like, no, there is no... I don't know, art as such, it's always historically specific and so on, or as some uh, uh, false feminists like to say, there is no woman of such, there are only white, black, lesbian women and so on and so on. This sounds uh, 
very deep and it's even I advise you to take this you know, if you are engaged in a theoretical discussion and you are losing don't know the way out one rhetorical way out is always this false nominalism like uh, Maria with you I talk I'm losing and let's say we talk about capitalism and I'm an idiot I'm losing then I will say but there is no capitalism as such what are we talking about there's only this that capitalism and so on the thesis of Marx is that capitalism is universal. Let, let's say I trade with a Chinese or African or whoever Palestinian guy. Of course we have all different cultures and we can play this hermeneutic game when I say wealth. Maybe in Europe, of course, it means another thing than in, uh, in China or wherever. But the, the language of money is the same. The truth is that I am that market commodities speak a universal language today. We live in a... So, as Marx put it very nicely, ideology is not only in this that it's a universality but which covers its own historical particular character. It's also that capitalism is much more universal than it may appear. Market is universality in practice. You know, it's something that can be also developed nicely based on Lacan when he speaks about universality of signifier and so on. Let's say we talk about freedom. And let's say I collaborate with another group or sex or race or whatever. Of course we can play this boring uh, deconstructionist, multiculturalist way, but how do I know that you mean the same with freedom as I do? What if I mean more one thing, you more another? You know what's my solution? I don't care. Let's make a political program, it works. And I claim all successful political programs work like this. You can always destroy them by claiming, but they don't mean the same thing as you. Maybe they don't, but you can do things. We all fight for the same name. I believe in power of names here. Even if at a certain point this can lead to new conflicts and so on and so on. Of course, and Ernesto Laclau, I had very bad relations with him at the end, but he made this nicely, how the master signifiers of hegemony are in this sense always empty signifiers, you know. It's like all power to the people. It was clear in Egypt, for example, that Muslim Brotherhood didn't mean the same thing as uh, all those, the, uh, all those uh, young educated people and so on. But you can start a movement in this way, and then there is a struggle for hegemony, who will win, and so on, and so on. So again, uh, uh, of course, we shouldn't accept Western universality the way it is. But what we should accept is the idea it's more than ever needed today. The idea of political ideological universality as such. And we should not get lost in this multicultural debates. How do we know that we think the same thing? Is there already that? Okay, we don't, but so what? Let's work. It works. Things work even if we don't think it's the same thing, because now you will say this is a cynical solution. No, it's not, because there is a beauty of political creativity, which is, let's say that I am a conservative and I participate in a revolution, although I have 
a very specific idea of freedom. But you should not underestimate how, once you engage yourself in a movement, uh, the very background of what you understand by it will change. You know, it's not just that, let's say, I have one notion of freedom, you have another, and we fight, but it's really different notions. No, the fight itself will change our notions. Okay, maybe I... Yeah, thank if, you. As they say, in, I like those, when I was very young, Germans were making this Karl May Winnetou Indian movies, no? and the Indian chief said at the end, ich habe gesprochen, like, in nice... India, so ich habe gesprochen. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's go over to questions. Whoever wants, yes. Um, let's take you. And we have a mic, so please wait for the microphone. Uh -huh. um, when you wrote uh, about the train in the end of the tunnel, yeah. and we see the lighting exactly yeah. against us, I had a feeling that you were writing for us Brazilians at this specific moment. Probably you know what's going on very well, much better than myself. So, what I'm glad to know, if, um, have you ever seen the, the Argentinian film called Medius, if I'm not mistaken, of 1996? No, I have it, just interrupt and I give you immediately the word. That's my tragedy. I downloaded it with the idea now I can see whenever I want, which means I will probably never see it. But <laughs> I have it downloaded, the movie, yeah. <laughs> the ones who didn't watch it. I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's about a train that passes. Now you have to see the film to, to realize how it happens. But it passes and um, we actually don't see it passing. So one how, how do we know that, that it passes? Well, you have to see the film. I don't want to spoil it because it's, a one, it's an excellent film. Excellent. And, uh, well, what I ask you is what if the train has passed and didn't even bother to destroy us or to leave um, tangible uh, evidence of the destroy of having destroyed us already. What's your implication here? That in reality it did destroy us, we just didn't even feel it, or that it really didn't destroy us? This is maybe that uh, there is not even a light. We are not even seeing the light because it has passed already. And we can feel it destroyed us, but we don't know how it happened, and we have no idea where it's actually taking us. You know what? Okay, we don't have time to go into this because I would like, my way would be to elaborate in detail your metaphor. If you don't know, you don't see, and so on, what's the name of this train? How do you know that the train exists at all? What do you mean by train? Capitalism or what? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, how do you know? What if somebody comes and says there is no train? Train is like God, it's just your illusion and so on. I, I would like to know what... A, a very stupid question. A metaphor for what is your fucking train? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you, the, end, the end of your talk, you were talking about universities. Yeah. Could we think that the three powers, justice, legislation and executive, are a universe, a universality, so to speak, that is actually destroying us. I'm, I'm speaking about Brazil, but maybe you can... Yeah. 
No, specifically Brazilian. I think it's a concrete question of concrete circumstance. I'm here very pragmatic in this empirical question. In some political situations, the distinct, uh, the, how do you call this, uh, Montesquieu, distinction of powers between legal can play a good role. In some cases, it can play a very reactionary role and so on. I don't know. I am here very open. I can be corrected, but I am not ready to commit myself to an abstract principle like the distinction of three powers is a priori uh, good or bad. I can well imagine a situation where you have to play a little bit with democracy and go absolutely consciously against the will of the people. Now you will say I'm crazy, and I'm sorry if I repeat myself, I will give you immediately an example. Angela Merkel, two years ago, or when it was deciding to invite Comte one million people, uh, refugees. Are we aware that in some sense what she did, and through my friends who have some connection with German government, I learned the truth. She knew it. That's why it was nonetheless a nice, almost heroic act. She was well aware that if she were to say, no, 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 we should vote, is the majority for, it would command fuck off refugees. So she did something that a true politician does. You risk it, and you hope that through the result of your gesture, you will be retroactively justified. That's what a real politician does. Not follow the people. A real politician never follows the will of the people. This, no, I don't... Here I'm uh, progressively conservative, <laughs> you know, because I don't think that the majority accept... In, and I don't despise majority, you know. I'm a realist. These are poor people living in fear all the time and so on. But uh, uh, that's also my problem, as I already said here the last time, with somebody like Varoufakis, my good friend. But I found this DM idea a little bit stupid. And I told him this. You want a more transparent democratic Europe. This for me equals for let's fuckingly get rid of refugees. Because... Practically in all countries, I claim, if you were to do a referendum today, they would have been against. So we have this paradox. It's a beautiful, for a dialectician, beautiful, crazy situation. That to be truly anti-racist and for to help refugees, you have to act a little bit non-democratically, playing with public opinion, uh, and so on, and so on. These are the paradox. I mean, uh, we have to accept it that. How should I put it, my God? Uh, Isn't it that old Bohemian thing of don't give me what I'm asking because it's not this? Yes, but uh, it's difficult to apply this directly because the problem is how far do you go in this, you know? I mean, I would be tempted to apply this literally, which means let's organize elections. And then when we get the result, the opposite, you know, like, <laughs> if you don't want it, you know. I like to do this all the time. For example, I annoyed my good friend Alain Badiou, who uh, uh, proposed that formula, which is beautiful in the West, it works against this idea of immigrants are destroying our roots, you know. His formula was, quiet ici et d'ici. Those who are here are from here. So none of those distinctions, but you are not from here, you know. And I told them, well, that's certainly something that, uh, that, uh, um, uh, that 
Jewish settlers on the West Bank would fully support, you know. Like, sorry, we are here, so we are from here, so fuck off, Palestinians. You, you see, I, I like to complicate, but the lesson is a very sad one. You know, politics is basically risky. There is no simple way, like, oh, we make a democratic vote and so on, and we decide. You have, I'm not saying it's a postmodern game. I still believe in democracy, universality, all that. But about uh, Brasilia specifically, I don't know enough. All I know is that the country which is at this moment closest to me politically is, if you ask me, Bolivia. They are doing silently their modest job. They didn't screw up economy, although they are enforcing progressive measures and so on. They have no illusions and so on. And now they are even on the verge of, of luck. I read somewhere that they now discovered tremendous reserves of lithium there. And this may make them a new Saudi Arabia almost. Like they, they deserved it, I think. You know, they didn't go, because the tragedy of Chavez, let's forget about Maduro now, is for me that, as I always repeated, he was Fidel Castro with money. He was not really solving problems. He was throwing money at problems. But if you look closely at the effects of his economic politics, I'm not playing any liberal democratic games. I'm simply saying, what did he do with industry? How did it work? His... Uh, for example, I'm sorry, I will stop now because I talk too much, but nonetheless, a friend from Venezuela, I have a good friend there who is a cynical leftist. And whenever in the last years they gave a factory to workers, he just noted it. And then a year later he went to check what happened with that factory. Hundreds of cases, not one was a success. <laughs> so, you know, that's why we leftists who are critical of this situation, Macron, Le Pen, and so on, should never forget to be also self-critical. I, the tragedy of the left today is that a world is coming to an end. Something new will have to emerge. But do we really know what? So people often ask me, why do you then dream at all? Why don't we simply accept it? No, it will be a catastrophe. It will be either a catastrophe, but or something a little bit better, but it cannot go on the way it is now. But speaking about uh, uh, Brazil and so Argentinian, do you know that movie, Lucrecia Martel, Cienaga, and so on? Oh my God, this is a great Argentinian movie, which is the best staging of this despair of everyday life in province, this type of uh, everyday of everyday ideology, no? And of course, speaking of Brazil, I'm a great admirer of Canudos, of course. <laughs> Sorry, I talked too much. Um, too, too a lot. There were... Uh, there, yeah. uh, well, there was uh, this guy first, and then... Uh, yeah. I got two questions, if I may. I don't know if you find yeah. them as being related. I think they might be. Yeah. The first one, you just mentioned Bolivia and uh, the Latin American case in general. So the first one has to do with uh, market and state. And the self-criticism that, as, as you said, is needed yeah. in the left. So I'm thinking, for example, in the case of, e of Ecuador, but also Bolivia. Uh, so Ecuador is the state where the leader's new name is Lenin, no? Yes. No. It's my country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the thing with cases like Ecuador, or I would argue Bolivia, uh, I don't know, Venezuela is a different type of yeah, species. Yeah. 
uh, is that it's a republic self-proclaimed socialist with a lot of policies that leans toward the left and so on, and very, and very useful too. But capitalism is trying to, in my view. So what, what I mean by this, you know, oil companies from Canada, USA, yeah, yeah, and so yeah, yeah. on, and, and China. I know all these problems you know in Ecuador. Ecuador. I mean? so, yeah, yeah. so my question is very pragmatic in this sense, as I asked. Mm. What can the left do? Because at the moment, the, the hegemonic power is the left, at least rhetorically, in Ecuador. So those of us who are part of or identify ourselves ideologically with the left, we have a very hard time being critical. And what's the intellectual position and, and political position that you would argue in this complex scenario? And the second one goes into the other direction, the direction of subjectivity. Yeah. You mentioned the case of yeah. You, yeah. you mentioned the case of uh, Bosnia with the feminists bringing this psychological or pseudo psychological questionnaire about, or anthropological yeah, questionnaire yeah. about. So the question concretely is about the psychological discourse in the ideology, in the ideological globalization of, of psychology as a way of looking at, 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 subject, at subjectivity uh, instead of a politicized social yeah, way of looking yeah, yeah, yeah. at it. And if you think again pragmatically, is there any way we can ex escape language? Escape psych uh, psychological, uh, even psychoanalytical language, to think about ourselves and others. Is, is, there, is there an alternative for this? So those are my two questions. Okay, I will try to be brief. Not take much. First, market state. Frankly, I don't know, and I don't have a clear answer to this. I think that uh, still uh, we are not again. I will be. It will be very pessimist what I'm saying, but we are. Catastrophe is approaching. By catastrophe, I think some new crisis or whatever. And uh, what we should do is, my God, many people would accuse me of being some kind of abstract mystic, but we should occupy positions and get ready for we don't yet know what. That would be a very pessimist position. Because everybody who says, but I know what we should do. I ask them, okay, tell me what, nationalize, give factories to the workers, and so on. Especially those who are partisans of local democracy, communities. Tell me one example of local, local how do you call it, pre-representative democracy, which works without a charismatic leader. Now, I don't have problem with charismatic leaders, just that... Uh, uh, to make this clear, I, so uh, uh, the, my main point would have been this one, which is much more interesting, and it opens up a space for acting. Today, it's not simply market versus state. For market to function at all, we need more and more state regulation. Look at the United States. It's not true that states are disappearing, big companies rule. No, strong regulatory state is more and more needed. And look at the most dynamic countries today, Korea, Singapore, China. It's market with an extremely strong state which intervenes of the, or, or into the market all the time and so on and so on. And this would be my only general note. More trust in the state. We should take over the state. We should absolutely stop with this Pseudo-Foucauldian, I re refer to Michel Foucault, idea, state apparatus, control, manipulation, and then the leftist position as that of resisting, finding the niches of resistance against. No, great power wherever you, whenever you can. Don't be afraid to use police, to use 
I will not go to the end here, what, but, but uh, I never liked with the left this false modesty, you know, which betrays this enjoyment. It's nice to be in a marginal position on the edge. In this way, you can analyze critically everything. This is the left whose great triumph is always when people go, when, sorry, when an emancipatory revolutionary movement goes wrong, it's always the greatest pleasure of leftists to write an excellent analysis of why it had to go wrong, you know. No, I, I think that, I think that uh, uh, like, what we can do in this situation, we can change the terrain, open spaces here and there, push the limit of possible, impossible. For example, I'm sorry, the example that I use every year here, even with Obama, what he did with Obamacare, healthcare, was something which was almost revolutionary for the United States. Because for the United States, it was because of their ideology of personal freedom, choice, and so on. This was almost pushing it to the impossible. So I would say it's not uh, simply an idea, big revolution or gradual reforms. I like reforms, but this type of reforms which appear modest, but they have a devil hidden in them, you know. You say, oh, we'll just change that. I like this type of revolution. We'll just change that small law, subsection of the law, but you know how this will trigger all of it. But again, the crisis, the crisis is serious. Like when leftists say, okay, plant this Stalinist state-controlled socialism doesn't work. Okay, but my question is, what works then? They say we need a democratic socialism. Okay, show me how it works. What do we have outside social democracy? Um, again, I repeat, uh, but, okay, sorry, I will not get lost here, but I will go to your second question uh, because it hides a very good point. Psychology and all that. I totally agree with you and it all began already in Marxism, this misuse of psychology. Contrary to the usual predominant opinion, uh, Marxists always basically liked psychoanalysis. Why? Because from 1920s onwards, the problem of Marxists was, according to our analysis, there should be a revolutionary working class and a revolution. It didn't happen. And then they liked it. Sorry, to explain that, look to Freud through these unconscious manipulations, blah, blah, blah. They used psychoanalysis to mystify, to obfuscate, the failure of their own immanent. But at another level, you know where psychology is important? Look, the more anonymous systems rule us, the more we are treated as psychological subject, our fate depends on us, choice. This is the big paradox today. Again, that the more we live, we are totally dominated by anonymous systems, anonymous in the sense that nobody controls them, and this is clear, just remember the, the crash, the crisis of 2008. Nobody, at least, most of the economy didn't see it coming and so on and so on, but again, the predominant discourse is that of advises individual choice, how to, me, how to win in competition, how to present yourself, and so on and so on. So this is a nice paradox that it's not that psychology is needed when we are strong individuals who can influence our fate and so on, but the more we are actually impotent, 
the more we are treated like free psychological subjects who can, you know, choose our fate and so on and so on. And uh, again, uh, uh, this for me uh, is the crucial point. That's why I still like, in spite of some stupidities he's saying, doing Assange. As I always emphasize, when Assange was reproached for, but why do you attack only United States, why not Putin and others? No. The way I see it is, but look, nobody has the illusion that there is serious freedom in Russia. You don't need Wikileaks in Russia. You have to go around and look at, you know, what, where I like Wikileaks is they tell you how even in a country where people still basically experience themselves as free, how you can be regulated, controlled, and so on and so on. For example, everybody is forgetting this, but for me, the best text by Assange is his book, Strangely Overlooked, Ignored on Google. Well, he demonstrates in detail not only connect the connection of Google as organization with NSA, he defines Google as privately owned NSA. A corporation, but <coughs> in what way we are controlled? Did you see no, that wonderful British miniseries? I think it went into second, third years, uh, uh, Black Mirror, where it began with your Tony Blair like uh, uh, Prime Minister has to fuck. Uh, no, I have to say it to be vulgar. Sorry, it's my duty. Has to fuck a pig to save Princess Diana or whatever. But you know, the beginning of second season. The first installment is even more interesting. It depicts a society where we are all constantly rated, graduated on phone. Whenever you speak with someone, they click, they put you at a certain level, and then you get an objective grading. But then to get things, to, to I don't know, get a certain ticket, acceptance here, there, your grades matter. And you are graded all the time. And this is no longer an illusion. It already functions like this, like through Google and so on. All companies know things about you, your credit standing, do, did you break the law, whatever, and you are graded all the time. And in China, I love them, I read, they already have plans to formalize it. To establish, it's totally computerized for all people who have, are connected to digital universe, practically all, uh, they found a nicer, more Confucian-sounding name, Citizens' Trust, or something like this, trust status. They simply follow, uh, do you have any, did you break the law in any way? Do you have any troubles with banks, credit, uh, traffic violations, whatever? And then more subtle stuff, like are you a member of the party, or are you known for buying dissident literature, whatever? And then the idea is that each individual would be graded, and that they already have a conc concrete proposals, like if you want to get a passport abroad, you must reach a certain grade, and so on, and so on. But I wouldn't, again, blame the Chinese. We are all doing it, doing it in a certain way. And you know what interests me in this categorization, grading? Not where I am, but... There are always two categories who are out. Those at the bottom, who simply don't care, and those on the top. You know, like, sorry if I repeat an old story, I remember 
When I was young, it was more popular than now that crazy American comical magazine, Mad. And they have a nice story, series of how four levels of where we can stand with any topic, sexuality, fashion. And I remember how the fashion worked. Those who are the lowest, they simply don't care how they are dressed, like, look at me, and so on, I would say, no? Then you have one level up, those who try to catch up with fashion but are late. Then there are those who can afford to, to follow the fashion, to be up. But then on the top, you have those who, like the lowest one, don't care about fashion because they're trendsetters. What they wear is the fashion, you know, so they don't wear. And I think it's something of the same with this uh, uh, grading, you know. Those at the bottom and those on the top are out, but the true struggle is between the two of them. And I think that the first installment of second year of that story, it ends like this, that the girl heroine simply decides to step out. I don't care. Out of, uh, out of grading and so on. You know. So, again, uh, uh, this basic paradox interests me so much. How less we are effectively socially free the more we are treated as free. Now, the first thing, of course, to ask here is what concept of freedom is at work here? It's usually the freedom of choice, like I can do this, but you know what's my solution here? That Again, as I always repeated, that this is not the true notion of freedom. I claim, here I'm a kind of a more dialectician, that true freedom is very close to necessity. Like, true freedom for me is not, I go to Patisserie, you have here in London, Valérie, no? But I'm an old conservative, 20 years late, earlier, Valérie was better than it's now. Okay, let's forget that. And which cake will I have, no? Isn't true freedom something that you decide for it in terrible, with terrible anxiety, and then once you choose it, you are convinced that I've chosen it because... I couldn't have done it otherwise. True radical free act is always an act which experiences itself in this. That's why I wonder if you agree with me here. You know that, uh, maybe it's conservative me, but now the latest trend in this uh, new sexual liberation stuff is, I think they call it polyamory, no? Like, why with one partner you can be with many partners and so on? Sorry, I'm a metaphysician here. I believe in true love only one. You know why? I will tell you. Because the moment you go to the level of this polyamory, it's not true love, it's already pragmatic. You know, I love you for this, I love you for that, and so on. But I'm very romantic here. True love does not mean I like you, that's why. True love is always desperate. I may hate you, but... I cannot be without you, like, I can't, you know, it's always this radical impossibility of, 
I simply cannot be without you. And this works only with one, I claim. You already cheat if you say, I cannot be without you, I cannot be without you, I cannot be without you, you know. So we have to be uh, very careful here how it appears liberating. Yes, polyamory and so on and so on. But what happens with love here? Does it still have this desperate attitude of, you know, this precisely this impossibility? You, true love means I freely chosen, in some sense it's my love, but it means exactly I have chosen not to have a choice. This is true love for me. I talk too much. I know I didn't answer, but fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. You have to say, yeah, no, professor, you give me a nice answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that guy who began with, uh, sorry, you, if you. Um, okay, so uh, thank you for your talk, Professor Zizek. Oh, my God. And, uh, Pull and out also, your knife. I'd like to apologize for my earlier intervention. No, no. That was, uh, Why? But I thought it, you, you said that we could interrupt, and I thought, so yeah, I, yeah. I do apologize yeah, yeah. for that. Um, so as a, uh, as a Marxist theoretician, uh, you've spoken about a few kind of practical solutions about the way forward. Now, one, one point I'd like to take you, uh, maybe take you on, but is, is the fight, you mentioned the fight for Tibet. Yeah. Now, um, do you, do you, what, what kind of political program do you propose? Like when you when you mentioned like going out, there's something that can be done. Tibet. What what, what can be done in terms of that fight? No, here I will maybe disappoint you, but you know I less and less consider myself a political thinker in the sense of I just bring problems. I like to point out deadlocks and so on. So, uh, going back to Tibet, because everyone has such a sympathy for Tibet, and I have it. I mean, I know the horrors the Chinese were doing there. I think it's nonetheless our duty to show how Tibet was not a lost paradise before Chinese intervention. That it was a country, whatever Chinese did, the fact is that in '49, the average lifespan in Tibet was 29 years, and today it's 56. Whatever this means, it means something. On the other hand, I know what the Chinese are doing. Like, they are developing Tibet, but with Chinese immigration in Lhasa and so on, Tibetans are already a minority and so on. So what I'm saying is simply that uh, I don't see... Uh, then there is another thing, which is almost, you shouldn't say this in China, but my... Chinese friends admitted this to me, even some who are close, close to official politics. You know that Chinese society is pretty racist, I noticed. De facto, at everyday level, how they treat... So, I think... I mean, Chinese have built a railway that goes all the way from... Yeah, but it's ambiguous. I love it. I would like to take it, but of course it's part of a colonization and so on. But what would you have done? I think that the only way is to accept this modernization because I think that uh, uh, it's not enough for Tibetans to play the game of we want to keep, to maintain our old way of life and so on and so on. I, the only way I see is building a certain strategic alliances because, for example, I learned that in Chinese Communist Party, even there, 
There are strong tendencies to build better relations with Tibet. They are even, not that they are uh, revolution, revolutionaries, but they simply see how more intelligent, tolerant politics in Tibet could even help the Chinese interests there and so on and so on. Although even some Tibetans that I met admitted one thing to me, the Western hypocrisy, namely, you know that till 49, the American politics was strictly Tibet is part of China. Only at that point when it became communist, they suddenly discovered Tibetan independence and so on and so on. Would you agree that Tibet is part of China? Sorry? Would you agree that Tibet is part of China? First, I think this is a contingent uh, historical stuff in the sense of I don't think that any... I'm here pretty liberal in my spontaneous attitude. I don't care if countries fall apart. I don't care if countries unite. I don't think... You know, this is a legal historical question. One thing is true. The very term Lama, Dalai Lama, comes from Mongolia. So do you know that's the most beautiful paradox, that the unity of Tibet was created through foreign intervention, not Chinese, but Mongolian. Lama is a Mongolian term, and so on. So I'm saying one should be here pretty liberal, in the sense of when you say it's Tibet part of China, what the hell do I know? How do you measure it? I don't think there is some eternal natural right where you, I only know this, and again, I read this in a pro-Tibetan book. You know that till 49, uh, the Tibetan theocracy, aristocracy, on purpose prevented any development of uh, iron factories, heavy industry, because they knew well that this would bring modernization, potential workers movement, so every piece of metal had to be imported from China. Sorry, from, from, from India. One more, one more question. Uh, no, we have to... Uh, no, 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 but it's not a problem for... Okay, yeah, okay. Well, maybe... Else, well, we're out of time now, um, so we're back here... Okay, I can stop a little bit earlier. Uh, you know what you can do? Ah, wonderfully. Sorry. No, no, nothing. Uh, did you see any of these two science fiction movies, which I find quite interesting as theoretical problems? The two of these alternate history, circular time, uh, The Arrival and The Discovery. Arrival is much more subversive than it may appear. It's not this New Age bullshit. See, the lady discovers circular time, this higher civilization. And I want, maybe, I want to connect virtual space and so on, these new forms of immortality with this. So, if you have time, download. I'm now making illegal propaganda. <laughs> Pirate Bay and so on. Arrival, and on the top of it, if you want, uh, the discovery, where Paul Newman plays an old scientist who... Uh, I will not go into it, but so maybe we do this, and I will try to be a little bit shorter so we can do it a little bit more on, okay. on Wednesday. Although, after my talk, I will have to finish at four, I have the nightmare, no? I have to meet uh, a person who I will not mention his name, I will just say that he is not impersonal, but has a self, and as a self, he has a free will. That's all I say for my witnesses.